Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, Lord, and lead me in the way everlasting. Dear Holy Father, we thank you that we can come together today to worship you publicly. Something that's amiss in other areas of the world. We pray today for people of South Sudan who cannot worship you in public but they may must hide in the confines of their homes to worship you. We pray for them, O oh God. We ask, Father God, as we seek to glorify and honor your name today, that you'll forgive us of our sins. Forgive us, Father, of the sins we deliberately commit. And forgive us, Father, for those things which we do the sins we perform that uh, we aren't even aware of. One such thought comes to mind, Father God, is the question of idol worship in our lives. We ask that you will help us to blot out and to revoke the idols in our lives. Father, we thank you for our church. We thank you for our people. We ask you, Father God, to bless the sick. Heal them, those who need healing in our church, Father God. Comfort those who are, who are just need sustained comfort, Father God. And Father God, as we go into this morning's worship service, we ask a special blessing upon everything we say or do, the reading of the word as the pastor unpacks the word for us. We ask your blessing on it. Give us listening minds, Father God, and give us that sense of understanding, Father God. And Father God, we ask, we, we, we thank you for all you have done for us, for the many ministries of our church, Father God. Father God, we ask that this morning, let us be joyful, let us have joy, the things we do today, Father God. Give us a sense of understanding, Father God. And Father God, help us that we'll be fervent and we'll continue on in our prayer lives. Bless this all and bless us, Father God, as we continue to worship you. This we beg. and glorify our God, the Father of our Lord. In Christ he has in heavenly realms his blessings on his board. For pure and blameless in his sight, he destined us to be. And now we've been adopted through his Son eternally. 
Well, good morning, everybody. We want to welcome you to the Northwest Baptist Church. We're glad that you're here visiting with us or here with us today. If you are visiting, just fill out a Connect card located in the seat in front of you, and we'd love to have a record of your attendance. And when you fill, finish filling it out, put it in the offering plate when it comes by in just a few minutes. Now, for I've heard a huge rumor today that there is um, some sort of small football game going on. And most of you are prepared for it. Um, I have to say it's a sad day because there will be no more football for a while, <laughs> at least until September. But I will make it. Some of you wives out there are saying, praise God, <laughs> no football for a while. So at least my family is. But anyway. Hope that you enjoy the day. But uh, this morning we are going to observe our Lord's Supper service uh, in just a few minutes following the service. And I uh, want to let you know right now that our uh, offering is going to go to our benevolent fund. Uh, we are doing so much with that, and it's because of your wonderful, generous giving that we're able to do that. And we're going to continue that on because we have a lot of things that we want to do uh, for the people in our community as well as people in our church. Join us Wednesday night for our uh, Wednesday night dinners beginning at 5.30. And then stick around at 6.30 for our Bible studies that take place. We have uh, How to Study the Bible right here in the main sanctuary with Pastor Andrew. And then the teenagers are over in the youth room with me. And we're going through the counterculture series. And then, of course, our children. My wife is in charge of them across the street. Uh, and they're dealing with the life of Jesus. And it's a wonderful thing for you to get involved in. A lot of things are being done around here, and we hope that you will make sure that you are a part of it each and every Wednesday night. Our corporate prayer meeting uh, will take place next Sunday evening. It'll be at 6 o'clock right here in the main sanctuary. And next week's uh, theme, or the things that we are going to be focusing on, our prayer of emphasis, is going to be on relationships. Uh, and so come out next week uh, for that at 6 o'clock p.m. Recycle Teenagers, one week from Tuesday, we are going to have our luncheon. You can begin signing up with me today. Uh, the cost is $7, and we're going to be going to the Child Time uh, Grill and Buffet, and we are going to do two things. We are going to celebrate Chinese New Year, because it never usually happens around a, a luncheon, and then we're also going to have a special time for Valentine's. It's somehow the next day, uh, <laughs> and so I'll be in panic mode by then. So you all have to help me out there, but uh, it's going to be a great time of getting together with our recycled teenagers. So if you have not signed up, please do so by next Sunday for that. Young professionals, a week from, uh, two weeks from today, uh, you are going to have a luncheon. It's going to be a little outing for uh, us that afternoon. We're going to have our luncheon at Top Golf, the new place right over here uh, that's opened up. It's a great time to get together, have some fun eat some food, and even if you have never golfed in your life or swung a club in your life, you're going to have fun. Uh, and you need to make sure that you sign up and pay Johan by next Sunday. We have to turn in our figures by uh, next Monday, so you need to make sure you sign up with him. With that, the cost is right at $15 plus whatever you eat for lunch over there at the event. And then uh, if you are in the medical profession, uh, I am in need of your assistance. We are going to have a meeting on the 25th, right after the service, in the upper room uh, to help coordinate some efforts for our Costa Rica trip in July. Uh, and when you come to the meeting, you will understand about it. So if you are in the medical profession, 
you can help me out by or, uh, the things that we need to organize and materials that we need to get and to have on hand when we get there uh, in July. And even if you're not going on the trip, I could use your expertise. So please, please make your plans to come out. That's the last Sunday of the month uh, in the upper room on the 25th right after the service. Uh, giving envelopes, most of them have now come in. I believe there's just a couple that have not, but if you can check the back in the vestibule, they should be laid out there. Find your name, pick them up, uh, and use them. For some reason, people just think, well, I don't have an offering envelope. I cannot give. That's just not true. <laughs> you have offering envelopes in the seat in front of you. I'm sure that you didn't use some from previous years, so use them. It's okay. Uh, and if not, write on the dollar bills. We'll make sure that they get to the appropriate place. <laughs> make sure that they are at least $100 bills. You know, that, that, those are the best kind. Um, and so they are back there. Make sure that you pick those up. And then our Costa Rica trip is coming up in July. Our applications are out in the vestibule. If you are interested in it, pick one up. Uh, the first deposit's due in March, so we have some time. Uh, we should be getting out the, fun, the major fundraisers here shortly. We're working hard to get them all lined up so that we can get them out to you so that you can raise the needed funds that you might have. Uh, currently, we have uh, people from Colorado, Indiana, Ohio uh, also going on this trip. And you might have a friend or two that live elsewhere. That's fine. Uh, just let me know. We will coordinate all the efforts in order for them to join us with this trip this year. And we'd like to take uh, at least 20. Uh, up to 30 people can go on this particular trip, and we're going to make this a tremendous opportunity of building a prototype home so that we can, in future, other groups will come down and rebuild entire communities uh, because of what we start there this year. And so we hope that you will be a part of it. Ushers, if you would come now for our morning tithes and offerings. And now let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, it is a joy to be in your presence. Thank you that we can find our resting place in you. And so, Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for what this church has meant to this community over the years. We thank you for the impact that we've had on this community. And, Lord, we know that we can do more. And, Father, we, because we know we can do more, we know that it also takes financial means to do it. And so we pray that you will bless now this offering. In Jesus' name.
stand now for the reading of our verse for our church for this year, found in 2 Timothy. Wow, can you read that? <laughs> 2 Timothy 2.15, well, you ought to know it by now. Would you recite it with me? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly defending the word of truth. I hope that you do that. There are several key words in that verse. You know, it's approved. We, I mean, we talked about, but then it's work. You know, it is a lot of work to be approved of God and, and to live this Christian life the way we should live it. And so I hope that you are a worker, not just somebody that's on the sidelines mm. letting somebody else do it for them. Mm. Everybody has a job, whether it's just to pray or be an active member. You have a part that you can do, and I hope that you will do it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now as we recite together our Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Yeah. 
Do a second. That we need to end on. Amazing love. How can it be that my God would die for me? Every other religion in the world tells its people. They have to die for their God. And only in Christianity does our God die for us. When did he die for us? When we did everything right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? That is the song I'm glad we ended on this morning. Proverbs 16, 25 says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Let's pray. Father, we think we know what's best for our lives. We think we know the best way to navigate our path. Instead of allowing your word to light our path, 
go to the world. We go to ourselves. Because we believe that the right way is apart from you. We believe your word is outdated, that your doctrine is dead doctrine. We're not sure that the Bible has any relevance for us today. Because we think in our hearts that we have the right way. And Lord, I praise you, God, that you will not be mocked. You will prove to this world that the way of man is not right. You will prove it. If we devour ourselves, you will prove it, that our way is not the right way. I praise you, God. Lord, my request this morning is that you would grant us a heart that seeks your way above our own. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is going to be a two-part sermon. And it's going to be with a single title, What is a Christian Worldview? Uh, today, we're, we're going to have a, a single proposition. That is the, the thing that I want to prove. And that is that contradictory beliefs at the level of our worldview leads to contradictory attitudes and actions in our life. But today, we want to focus, I want to focus on the first part of this issue. And I want to state this. So today's proposition is slightly different than the proposition for the whole two sermons. So I want to focus on this today. Since Christianity is the only true world view, we must contend for the faith by reasoning with both ourselves and others. Let me say that again. Since Christianity is the only true world view, we must contend for the faith by reasoning with both ourselves and others. I want you to know this morning, right out of the gate, what I am arguing for, and it is this. Christianity is the only true world view. Now that is not popular. But truth and popularity aren't the same thing. We are not looking for popularity. We are looking for truth. Today, today we say that the right way is to proceed with the tolerant way. And tolerance has been redefined. They can't even find, they don't even know, the, the world doesn't even know the right word to use. The word tolerant used to mean to put up with, though I disagree. That's tolerate. When you drink Buckley's, you tolerate it. It's terrible. You don't like it. Today we've changed tolerance into this. We say tolerance is acceptance. 
I asked a group of 30 some odd young people the other day, and that was the only definition that they gave me. It means acceptance. That's not tolerance. So today we are teaching that the unforgivable sin is to disagree with another person's worldview. Everyone has to go along to get along. We cannot criticize another person's beliefs as right or wrong. They have their truth, I have my truth, and we shall respect one another. Now, I completely agree that we should respect one another's beliefs, but that does not mean that we have to agree with every belief. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Now, I am saying this morning that Christianity is the only true worldview. And if you, if you disagree with that, let me encourage you, stay the whole service, please. If you vehemently disagree with me, come and talk to me. Right? Like Casey and JoJo said. Come and talk to me. I really want to know you. Can I talk to you? Come and talk to me. <laughs> Your pastor likes Jodeci. I mean, that's uh, just, uh, just what it is, folks. Listen to me. You disagree with me, you come and talk to me. Do not follow the way of the world that is trying to mute any kind of dialogue. That's not going to help our situation. Do not label me a bigot. Do not label me a fascist. Do not label me a racist. Do not label me anything without giving me the fair chance to explain myself and you the fair chance to explain yourself. But I am making a proposition this morning, and I don't think that this proposition is agreed by everyone here, and I'll show you why. Here are the statistics. I want to give you some statistics this morning. Christians are divided on how the Bible should be interpreted. 39% of Christians say that the Bible is God's word and should be taken literally. Now, let me explain something to you about literally. The Bible is written in different literary genre. And those literary genre, they go from one end to the other. When John says that should all of the works of Jesus have been written down, there would not be enough room in all of the world to contain them. He is not speaking literally. He is speaking hyperbolically. And a hyperbole is an exaggeration for an intended effect. Like when my students used to come in the room and they'd say, it's freezing in here. And I would say, it's not freezing in here. Freezing is below 32, 32 degrees Fahrenheit and below. But that's not the point. The point is that it is really cold, and they're using hyperbole, and it's a valid way of speaking. There's nothing wrong with that speaking. We just have to interpret it correctly. So to say that we, as Christians, I believe that the Bible is completely true. That is from page one 
to whatever the last page is, depending on what Bible you have. But from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 and the last verse there, I believe that the Bible is true and everything in between. On matters of science, on matters of truth, on matters of religion, and about other worldviews. But I also believe that we have to understand the Bible correctly. It is not fair to say that every part should be understood. When we use the literal, the word literal, we mean that that oh, we should accept what John said about the books of the of written about Jesus. And that's hyperbole. We have to understand people according to the way they're speaking. Thirty-six percent of Christians say that the Bible is not God's word and have no other opinion. This is Christians. And then 18% say the Bible is a book written by men, not God. That's a problem when people who call themselves Christians disagree that widely on just what this thing is. Give you some more. 64% of Christians say that God accepts the worship from other, uh, this is American Christians, 64% of American Christians say that God accepts the worship from people of other faiths. Now, of course they're going to say that. Why? Because we don't agree on the Bible being God's word. So we have to understand that one belief has consequences that go from one to another. I remember watching the documentary Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, and at the end, Ben uh, Ben Stein is, he is talking with or interviewing with Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, and he asks Richard Dawkins a couple questions. He says, do you believe in God? And Dawkins says, no. And then he says, well, do you believe the world is created? And Dawkins says, of course not. Why would I? Because at least he understands this. Our fundamental beliefs about the world have consequences for other beliefs that work out eventually into our actions. Christian, you cannot so easily throw away your beliefs and say they don't matter and that not have implications in your day-to-day. Well, of course 64% are going to say that God accepts the worship from people of other faiths, since we can't agree that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to me, or no one comes to the Father except by me, we don't agree on that. Maybe Jesus didn't really say that. He, He said that in a time before that was politically correct. We act as if Jesus didn't say to the Samaritan woman, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So it cannot be the case that God accepts the worship of other faiths if they're not in agreement with Christianity because they would be false, not true. I don't know how clearer I can be on that. Here's another staggering statistic. This one is just straight up contradictory and illogical. 
Americans hold contradictory beliefs about Jesus. This is Scott McConnell, who is the director of Lifeway Research. He says about two-thirds of Americans believe Jesus is God, while half say Jesus is a being created by God. Those two beliefs don't seem to match, he says. Contradictory and incompatible beliefs are okay for most people. In other words, we boil down where we, where we end up. And by the way, there are many, many uh, different uh, statistics that he can give. And uh, I can give you that uh, after the service if you're interested in, in the article. But ultimately, we end up with this. We end up saying, it really doesn't matter what we believe. Here's one more statistic. The majority of American evangelicals believe everyone goes to heaven. 64% of evangelical Christians say that heaven is a place where people will eventually be reunited with their loved ones. Yeah, I believe this one about, I believe this one above all of them. With the amount of funerals that I've had to do, I believe that Christians believe that everyone goes to heaven. I ask you, what are we doing here if everyone goes to heaven? What am I contending for? Why are our missionaries risking their life, risking their families' lives, giving up a life in America if everyone eventually goes to heaven? So that they can educate people on how to be Christians? I can tell you, if you don't know anything about being a Christian, being a Christian is not easy. Christ laid this out for us. You're going to be my disciple? Do what? Take up the cross. They persecuted him. They're going to persecute you too. So we're going out and we're telling others to become a Christian so that they can be persecuted by the world? Why would we do that? Of course, you could lie and say that Christianity is your best life now. And people eat that up. The Bible says about hell, Jesus, at the judgment, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse, you are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jude 7 says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Listen to me. There is a way that seems right to man, but in its end lies destruction. You are the most unloving person when you tell people that there is no consequence for sin. I am quoting what one atheist said, Penn Gilliatt. He said, I can't understand how Christians can believe in an eternal hell, believe that I'm going there, and not tell me about it. shows me that we've got a big problem in the church. 
Francis Schaeffer, who eventually left America, went to started Labrie Institute, said this. The basic problem of Christians in this country in the last 80 years or so is that they have seen things in bits and pieces instead of totals. We see things in bits and pieces instead of totals. We don't see the connection between what we believe over here and what we believe over here and how that manifests itself in our lives. If we say that Christianity is true, there are consequences for our psychology, our beliefs, everything that we do. I want to show you this this morning. James says this. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Then listen to what James says here. He says, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Christians, listen to me. What you claim you believe with your mouth has to be evidenced by what you do with your hands and feet. If you really believe Christianity is true, if you really hold to the Bible as God's final rule in all matters of faith and practice, there has to be a marked difference in your life. I want to talk this morning about a worldview. Let me give you a definition for what a worldview is. A worldview is a conceptual filter through which we interpret all of reality. A worldview is a conceptual filter through which we interpret all of reality. A way to illustrate this is a worldview is like a pair of glasses. Having the wrong prescription will make things fuzzy, while having the right prescription will make things clear. A worldview takes place at the gut level. It is the essential core of everything we believe. In fact, one way to illustrate this is to answer the question of life's most important issues. So what do we believe about the most important questions of life? We have to answer questions like, why is there something instead of nothing? If we want to ultimately answer what the meaning of life is, we have to know why there's something and not nothing. And by nothing, I mean no thing. There is something here, you and I. We have minds, we have goals, we have a will. We have desires. We love. We believe that we ought to do some things and that we ought not to do others. And we have to answer why we're here rather than not here. It is fundamental to being a thinking creature. Why are we here? Our worldviews answer these questions. We have to answer the question, is there a God? Everyone has a belief about God. 
they either believe that he exists or that he does not exist. If they believe he exists, they believe he's either involved in the universe or he's not involved in the universe. Or they believe that the universe acts like his body. Or that they believe that the universe, everything in it, is part of God. And that God is a force rather than being a person. I just heard Matt Chandler say this. He said, when I got to the village church, I found out that more of our people believed that God was an impersonal force like karma rather than believing in a person of the scriptures. Most Christians aren't sure what to think about God. Is he a person? Is he not? We have to answer the question, where did we come from? Darwin answers the question. He says we came from time plus chance plus matter equals everything. Now listen, Darwin answered the question. And if you look at how atheists have come to their conclusion about atheism, most would say it was when they encountered Darwin's answer to the question, where did we come from? If all we are are just the next step in the evolutionary process and ultimately we are related to animals, then we have a lot to learn from their behavior. If we are simply the accidental conclusion of time plus chance plus matter, then why does it matter how I treat human beings? You need to open up your history books, people, and look at what Hitler, where Hitler got his ideas from. He had what was called social Darwinism. His goal was to purify the race, was to purify the human race by getting rid of what he considered undesirable tendencies or undesirable traits. And they just began to euthanize people who were ugly, people who were mentally handicapped, because he thought to himself, listen, the way that, and if you know anything about Germans, the way that they breed animals, they are very precise. My dad, he used to uh, breed German shepherds, and we would get full pedigrees, and they would explain how this trait in this dog and this trait in this dog would eventually lead to here. The problem is, Hitler saw human beings as the next step in the evolutionary process, and he did the same, and he said, we're going to get rid of these traits in humanity by killing them. And let me ask you, if there is no God, if the answer to evolution, if evolution is true, why not? Well, it doesn't make me feel good. So what? What do your feelings have to do with truth? You see, your beliefs have consequences. 
these answers to these worldview questions, when they're wrong, the world is fuzzier. But let me answer this. We all know that Hitler was wrong, don't we? We know he ought not to do that. We know that whether or not men and women are different races, have lesser functions and lesser abilities, aren't as smart as others, they still have something to them. There's still something there. And the world knew that was wrong. They just didn't know the answer to what it was. Worldview has to answer questions like, what is the purpose and meaning of life? My students believe that the purpose of life is themselves and pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure. They live by what's called YOLO. You only live once. And Nike swoops in to fill in that vacuum to say, just do it. And then our parents tell them to do it. They go off to college. Oh, you got to live. You got to experience it. Explore your sexuality. Explore yourself. Because that's the meaning and purpose of life. We've answered that meaning and purpose in life comes from ourself. Worldviews have to answer what is the right way to live? What is the right way to live? Should we protect our borders? Should we open our borders? Should we give to entitlement programs? Or should we expect people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps? What's the right way to live? Why is there evil in the world? Not just evil that human beings do to other people, but evil that happens all of the time. Why do people get sick and die? Why do children get sick and die? Why do people murder one another? Why do we have tsunamis and tornadoes? We look at that and we know something's not right. We know that babies shouldn't be dying of cancer because we see all of the cancer organizations that exist today to try and eradicate the disease because we know that's not right. But we don't know why. Then we really want to know, is there life after death? Does it matter what I do here? That should answer the question about you only live once. I constantly remind my people, my young people, the Bible says you live twice. You either live with God in heaven or you live apart from God in hell. You talk about hell, I sure do. I don't want to go there and I don't want you to go there. After all, I believe Christianity is true. Every one of us have a worldview. This isn't just something that the pastor has. Every one of you have a worldview. You may not know about it, but my goal is to get you to be conscious about it this morning. I want you to be aware that your worldview, how you answer those questions we just looked at, have effects in the rest of your life. 
our worldview affects our beliefs. It affects what we believe about life, values. That is what we prioritize as greater than another thing. It affects our attitudes about life. And ultimately, it affects our behaviors. Again, trace it back to look at, look at the example of history. Look at the example of a person like Karl Marx who taught that man is essentially good, but it is society that makes man bad. And it led to Marxist-Leninism, which said once we eradicate all of the external factors to man's behavior, the oppression of the rich, the suppression of the poor, once we eradicate faulty social institutions that he believed were social constructs, i.e. marriage, once we get rid of that, man will be just fine. And it led to the bloodiest century in all of the world's history. It's been estimated that Marxist-Leninism was responsible for somewhere between 75 million and 100 million deaths in the 20th century alone. Soviet soldiers would go out to farms, privately owned farms, and they'd tell the farmers, this land now belongs to the state. And the farmer who believed in fundamental private property would say, over my dead body. And those Soviet soldiers were quick to oblige. Why not kill him? For Marx, there is no God. Every person is part of the process. They are dispensable till we reach that moment of final utopian communistic reality. Our worldviews, what we believe in our core ultimately comes out in our behavior. Jesus said it best. He said, if you're a good tree, you're going to bear good fruit. I don't have to dig up the roots to my mango or to my avocado tree to know it's a good tree. All I have to do is look at how many are not there because people steal them and squirrels eat them. So I know it's a good avocado tree. Every year somebody steals them. I'd give them to them. They, if they would just ask, I'd give them to them. I don't have to look at the roots. You see, the roots aren't what I see. But what the roots are telling, what, what the fruit is telling me is that the roots are good. And I can look at the church in America today, and I can look at American society today and say, the roots are rotten. And you can't see it. But you might be part of the problem. And I don't want that to be the case for the people that will hear my voice every Sunday. I want you to know why you believe. I want you to know what you believe, and I want you to be able to answer these questions. Ronald Nash, the late Ronald Nash, said this, Christianity is not simply a religion that tells human beings how they may be forgiven. It is a total world and life view. 
Christians need to recognize that their faith has important things to say about the whole of human life. Christian, we have been complicit in separating the world from facts and values. We have said that faith is believing in things that there aren't any evidence for. That's Bill Maher's definition. And we so often do that. And whether or not we stated that, we certainly believe it. When our children come to us and they ask us, do we really believe that a man rose from the dead? We say, yes, we just believe it. Why? Because we believe it in our heart. But then they go to their scientist professor who says, of course he didn't raise from the dead. When people die, they die. And they stay dead. And they give them all of the reasons why the brain can't function without oxygen. And the kid walks away saying, Grandma's stupid. Scientific professor, he's smart. He answered my question. Grandma didn't. I got nothing against grandmas. I don't want to pick on grandmas. Pastors, for heaven's sake. Pastor, stupid. Scientific professor, smart. They answered my question. Faith is not. That's not how the Bible defines faith. We don't know even what the Bible says about faith. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Two words that Christians don't think about when they think about faith. Substance and evidence. Christian, you can't walk around talking about your worldview is true and then not expect to give some kind of substance and evidence for it. I mean, why do you believe in this thing? By the way, I'm not yelling at you. I'm just passionate about this. I'm yelling at some of you. Some of you need to be yelled at. Christian, why do you believe it if there's no substance and evidence? I can tell you, I can tell you that the disciples understood as much. When Jesus died, they were all eating together. And you know what they were saying to one another? We miss our friend. They were sad. Jesus had been telling them, I'm coming back. You'll see, you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. And they're together and they're crying. Thomas doesn't even believe. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it. Thomas is a skeptic. He's a scientist. He knows dead people stay dead. And Jesus appears. And the men who were at one time cowards, denying Christ three times, are now over in Acts chapter 4, standing boldly before the Sanhedrin, saying, do with us what you will, but as for us, we will preach the gospel. How can they say that? Because they understood that their faith has to have substance and evidence. The book of Acts begins with Jesus was raised and he spent 40 days doing many convincing proofs. Christian, we have to answer the question of our worldviews. We have to answer the problem. You've seen this bumper sticker before, right? That's our world's worldview today. Let's all just coexist. 
Let's not talk about truth. Let's just coexist. Now, I want to tell you, we should coexist with others. We should not be confrontational to the point of violence or taking away a person's civil rights. You understand me? But that doesn't mean we don't, we are not going to be confrontational with our flaws. There are major worldviews today. You're going to encounter these at work. The first one is the word naturalism. Naturalism is the belief that there is no reality that is outside of the physical reality. That all reality happens in the physical space-time continuum. And that has consequences. Postmodernism is the belief that there are no absolute truths. You have your little t-truth, I have my little t-truth, and you don't have a right to say what I said at the very beginning of this sermon is the unforgivable sin to a postmodern culture. I said Christianity is the only true worldview. And postmodernism says, "Uh uh-uh. We only have our little t-truths. That works for you, you like that, you do you, I'll do me. That's not how truth works. I can't tell the bus when I walk off the sidewalk, well, you do you, I'll do me. Because the bus going to do me. We understand that that worldview won't work. There's cosmic humanism. People like to feel God. They believe that God is part of the universe. The Bible says, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and that he spoke what did not exist into existence. But people believe that pantheism is true. They believe in reincarnation. Very popular here. Other worldviews like pluralism, that is that all religions are true. If you go to a school of higher learning, you will learn in the religious studies department what is called pluralism. Can't say that Hinduism is wrong. Listen to me. When I was at FIU, I have a degree in religious studies at FIU and a degree in philosophy at FIU. By the way, the philosophy degree is much more valuable than the religious studies one. When I went there, I had two courses that were taught by self, self-proclaimed witches. We learned that voodoo and Christianity were just two expressions. They're all equal. That's fundamentally illogical because they say self-contradictory things. They say exclusive things. It can't be true that Jesus is the only way and there are other ways. Marxism is a prevailing view. Man is naturally good. He must change his system. He is to be, he is not a, a greedy person. He is ultimately a product of his environment. Change the environment, you change the man. Islam is a huge world view. If you don't think Islam as a world view is affecting our world today, you're not watching the news. The last one, and this is an unfortunate one, is what's called moralistic therapeutic deism. This is the belief, quoting James Anderson, 
But God just wants us to be happy and nice to other people. That's all God wants for you. And my pastor just said that. Listen to me. Show me where God just wants you to be nice. He says you're not nice. But that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He said that you were dead in trespasses and sin, but that God made you alive in Christ. He says that there is no one who seeks God, no, not one. All have turned away. The Bible's not about God searching for man, and neither is the world. The Bible is about God searching for us. It's not man searching for God. No one seeks after God. Moralistic, therapeutic deism says he intervenes in our affairs only when we call on him to help us out. God is there to be our genie. Dr. James Anderson says this, professor of philosophy at Reformed Theological Seminary. He says each of these worldviews has profound implications for how people think about themselves what behaviors they consider right or wrong, and how they orient their lives. It is crucial that Christians be able to engage with unbelief at the worldview level. Christians need to understand not only what it means to have a biblical worldview, but also why they should hold fast to that worldview and apply it to all of life. They should be able to identify the major non-Christian worldviews that vie for dominance in our society to understand where they fundamentally differ from the Christian worldview and to make all a well-reasoned case that the Christian worldview alone is true, good, and beautiful. My proposition this morning is simple. And there are consequences. If Christianity is the only true worldview, all other worldviews are logically false. Now, some of you will say, well, there are good things in other worldviews. Absolutely there are. But a worldview must be coherent. It must agree. It cannot be incoherent. And Christians have understood their Bibles, their theology to be incoherent. And that will not pass the test. I want to show you this. If you have your Bibles, turn them to Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at verse 16. And then we're going to read to 32 as we conclude. Christian, let me be honest with you. You've been called to a very hard task in being a Christian. You have been called to confront the world with the truth of the Christian faith. And if you can't do that, then Christianity is not for you. No man goes to war without first sitting down and counting the cost. The rich young ruler came to Jesus. He was gung-ho, ready to take on. And Jesus said, fine, you have one, left, 
one thing left to do. Sell all you have and follow me. Consider the cost. God has not called you to be like. If you're going to be a Christian, God has called you to be like your master. Hated by the world. Because you speak truth. Because the way that seems right to man will never, will never want to hear the way of God. Listen to what Paul did. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Let me ask you a question. American Christian today, when you go out into the world, are you at all provoked by the amount of idols in the world? Does it bother you? Do you observe that the world is going to hell as they follow their idols? It provoked Paul. He was observant. The world was full of false worldviews. They were worshiping idols. And Isaiah, Paul, who grew up in the Jewish culture, knows how silly it is to be an idol worshiper. Because Paul read the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah says, you take a piece of wood, one piece of wood, you make a chair, you make a table, you chop some up for fire, and then you make a God. And listen to me, Christian. When we say that Christianity is the only true worldview, that's what we have to tell people about theirs. Your worldview, it's insane. It is irrational. It does not make sense. It can't work. This was the worldview of Isaiah's day. It was the worldview of Paul's day in Athens. They had statues of gods that they would pray to and worship, but they formed them by their own hands. And Paul says, that's unreasonable. Christian, your faith has to be reasonable. So what does Paul do? Listen. What does Paul do? So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Did he stand on the street corner and bang a sign? No, he reasoned with them. Substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. They have worldviews. An Epicurean believes this. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Stoics believe that nothing in life should change us. Everything is everything. They asked the Stoic philosopher one time to show the irrelevancy of his worldview. If living and dying are the same thing, why don't you go on and die? 
The response from the philosopher was, because they're the same thing. So people are engaging them in the marketplace with their ideas. And they're saying about him, what does this babbler wish to say? Babbler, as if he does not have a reasonable worldview. Christians are often called in social chat rooms, knuckle draggers, idiots, stupid, ignorant, homophobic, racist. Don't let the world label you. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Because Paul was speaking in a reasonable and rational way, he was brought to the forefront of the community to speak rationally and reasonably about the Christian faith. Today, what the media loves to do is go and find the dumbest Christian he can possibly find to debate a topic on the news. It's their gift. Al Sharpton is no Christian apologist. They said, maybe you know this new teaching that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new, i.e., ancient social media. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, or Areopagus, which was the center where they could, there was a mountainside, there was a cliff, they could stand on it, and they could have a platform to speak. Very good acoustics, still there today. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He knows what he's saying. My neighbors call me very religious, and I always explain to them I am Christian. Don't confuse the terms. Paul knows what he's saying. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Paul says, listen, there is evidence all over this city that you believe in something. And you even have one that says to an unknown God, just in case you missed one. Paul says, this I proclaim to you. His point is that all of those gods are unknown because all of those gods are false. The God who made the world, how do I prove that? Listen to what he says, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul says, you, you made a stone temple, but God made the stone. 
the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool. What does he need with your simple stone? That's unreasonable. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That's what these Athenians are doing. It's what every tribe in the world is doing with their religion. There is no such thing as a civilization that is atheistic. At least not one that starts out that way. Why? Because every, every nation in the world, every civilization is seeking its way towards God. But Paul just told them, you're not right. I'm here to show you the truth. Yes, he is actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being, he quotes one of their philosophers. He knows what the philosophers of that day think. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an imaged form by the art and imagination of man. In other words, God will not be created in your image. You are created in his. Every worldview tries to create God in their own image. Do your research. One of Muhammad's wives once said, it is interesting that Allah always goes with your will, Muhammad. Every religion tries to make God in their own image. And Christianity is the only one that says, no, we're made in His. He says here, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul later taught to the Corinthian church another Greek culture. If there was no resurrection from the dead, then our faith is in vain. If Christianity is not true, our faith is useless. He reasoned with them. Of course Christianity is true. Why? Because Christ raised from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead... Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Listen to me. When you speak the truth, do not expect everyone to agree with it. Some will mock. Many will mock. Many will say, I want to hear some more about this. But truth is not based on belief. 
our beliefs are based on truth. It says, finally, so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. I can tell you, when I was a young man growing up here at Northwest Christian, many in my class did not believe what was being taught to us every day. But by God's grace, I did. And I stand here today, not judging the truth of Christianity on those who did and didn't believe, but on its reasonableness, on its substance, on its evidence. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Christianity is the only true worldview. Let's pray. Father, there is a way that seems right to man. It seemed right to man to take a piece of wood and carve up for himself a God in his own image. Paul stood there in Athens, Greece, and all of the gods looked just like them and more. But you, God, made us in your image, giving us mind, giving us love, giving us a will, giving us a moral understanding to seek after you. And so, Lord, today we stand on the firm fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the substance of what we hope for in the future, the very evidence of the things not seen. Lord, we believe that one day, because Christ raised, we who are in him and have believed upon his name will also raise from the dead. Thank you, God. You are a good God who has given us substance and evidence for our hope.
going to begin our Lord's Supper. And I asked uh, Pastor Dave to do this ordinance this week because it's been on my heart recently that we may not have a right perspective, a perfect, a perfectly right perspective on just what we do the Lord's Supper for. I'm going to read to you uh, from the Westminster Shorter Catechism two questions, question 96 and question 97. The first question is, what is the Lord's Supper? Many of us, who wants to answer the question? You are brave. We're going to let the guys of Westminster answer this question for us. What is the Lord's Supper? We've been observing this rite for many years. We may not know why we observe it. I would certainly say that when we did it at nighttime, uh, when there was roughly 350 people in our church on a Sunday morning and we did it at night, um, and there would be 40 people there, that that would show we did not know truly what the Lord's Supper is. Unfortunately, we do not take the Lord's Supper as seriously as we should, especially in Baptist churches. But I want to change that. And I want us to think about what we're doing here. Question 96 asks, what is the Lord's Supper? Answer, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine, according to Christ's appointment, his death is showed forth. And the worthy receivers are, not after a corporal and carnal manner, but by faith. We say in our liturgy, we talk about the worthiness of the Lord's Supper. But what makes you worthy to receive the Lord's Supper is not living a perfect life. That is what they mean by not by corporal. It is not by what we do as a perfect body. It is by what we believe. It is by faith. We are made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits, to bear spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. As we take the bread and drink the cup this morning, I want us to be reminded of what we're saying. What we are testifying to is that it is the Lord's body and not mine that paid for my sin. That it was the Lord's blood and not mine that paid for my sin. Sometimes we think that this is the time where we come and we have morbid introspection to ask if we are good enough to receive. And the answer is none of us are good enough to receive. But the worthiness of partaking of the bread and of the grape juice is simply the belief that Christ died as your substitutionary atonement. Christ died and not you. So I want us to think about this as a time of nourishment. Many of you might have sin in your life that you're struggling with, that you have yet to repent of, confessing with your mouth, turning away from in your life. That sin might be beating you down. Maybe you've confessed it, but you haven't gotten over it. You don't feel like you're saved. You're just barely hanging on by a thread. The point of the Lord's Supper is to nourish your conscience. It is to nourish your conscience in that if you are in Christ, there is now no condemnation.
all of your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. This morning when you take the bread and when you think of the cup, I want you to be spiritually nourished. There ought to be smiles on our faces as we take it, understanding that Christ is our perfect substitute. Let's begin our time. Jesus called his followers to come out from the world and gather in his name. We assemble around this table at his invitation. Let our thoughts be centered upon his death, burial, resurrection, and soon return. Let every one of us be bold, both publicly and privately, individually and collectively, in affirming that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one can come to the Father except by Him. And further, that there is no other name under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. As we examine ourselves in the light of these great truths, let us rededicate ourselves to the proclamation of His gospel and to His command to be in the world but not of it. Let us further rededicate ourselves to live our lives in love, grace, holiness, and service while awaiting his return. It follows then that if anyone eats of the Lord's bread or drinks from his cup carelessly and with frivolity, it is to not think about the body, to not consider what Christ has done. He or she is guilty of sin against the Lord's body and blood. So then, everyone should search his own spirit first, And then eat the bread and drink from the cup. This is the Lord's table, not ours. As such, we invite all those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior to join with us as we celebrate this holy ordinance.
eat all kinds of fatty foods. We're going to eat chicken wings, and we're going to eat how many chicken wings? I don't know about you. We're going to have some quesadillas. I'm going to root hard that Tom Brady loses. And I'm going to be nourished by that food. And I'm going to need to be renourished later. And then I'll need to be renourished some more in the future. And this piece of bread here won't nourish our body physically. We know that we need more than that. But that's not the point. The point is to nourish us spiritually. To remember that this is Christ's body, and not ours, that was broken for our salvation. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, gave thanks to God, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in memory of me.
this cup, this juice that we're about to drink. It's no magic elixir. It's no special grace in this cup that will impart to you salvation. Paul says that salvation has now been revealed, our righteousness has now been revealed apart from the law, that is, apart from the works. It has been revealed by faith in Christ Jesus. The salvation that God requires is the appeal that our consciences make as we drink this cup. This is what saves us. Faith is what saves us. Faith in God's Son. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the symbol of a new covenant sealed with my blood. Whenever you drink it, do it in memory of me. For until the Lord comes, you will proclaim his death whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup. saying this morning, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? After they had finished the first supper, they sang a hymn and went out into the night. But before we sing our hymn, this is the portion of the service where we take up our other's offering. And this week, our other's offering is going to be going to our benevolence fund. say now our 
confession of faith. Would you stand with us as we state what we believe as a church? You'll repeat after me. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of us all, all-knowing, all-seeing, and all-powerful. We believe in Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, born of a virgin, died for the sins of the world, was buried, and on the third day arose bodily from the grave, ascended unto the Father, and is now interceding on behalf of every believer and will return to the earth again. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, who descended upon the church on the day of Pentecost, who convicts and calls the lost to Christ, empowers the church as she bears witness to the world. We believe the Bible is the inspired, infallible word of God, and that it is the power of God unto salvation to all those who trust in Christ. We believe that every Christian should maintain private devotion daily, which should include Bible reading and prayer. We believe that every Christian should bear witness to the world, both verbally and visually, through holy living and personal testimony. Let me encourage you, if you have said those today, and you're not certain that you really do believe those, let me encourage you, come and talk to me, please. Let's end in our closing hymn. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love, the fellowship of kindred minds desired through that dismissed.